0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: This is a special drive edition of Talk of Iowa. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. You may have one or more of them in your home or office right now. They're an essential holiday decoration for businesses and a perennial holiday gift. This hour, we'll talk about poinsettias, where they came from, and why we associate them with Christmas. Chris Curry is here today, assistant professor of horticulture at Iowa State University. Hello, Chris. Howdy. You are our poinsettia expert. So let's start with where they came from.
2: Um... Well, how far back do you want to go? Let's go
1: all the way back. <laughs> um, originally,
2: they, they're native to Guatemala. That would be their endemic range or their, their native range where, they, um, where they're originally from. But they have had a northward migration that has occurred. And um, I think the time period that we'd be most interested in is when they first crossed over into um, the United States and started to be used as a holiday plant. And that happened right around 1828, 1829 in Philadelphia. Um, So that's kind of the transition of, they started out in Guatemala, they ended up in Philadelphia, um, and then actually from Philadelphia, they went over to Scotland and they went uh, to Europe and that's where they were formally named uh, and given their scientific name by a Scottish botanist. Um, But then uh, it was really the introduction into the United States and into Europe that made them popular as um, sort of a potted plant for the holiday times. They were used in gardens and outdoor environments, and they were always associated with Christmas because they always flowered in that same time of the year. Um, But it was really kind of its appeal as an exotic plant into those new markets where it really took off as a uh, more of a holiday plant.
1: Well, and it, it is a tropical plant. So people getting excited about this tropical plant in Scotland or in Philadelphia in these colder environments doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. I mean, you, this ha- needs a lot of care to bloom in the winter.
2: Well, in, in, but if you think about those plants that really have captivated botanists, you know, uh, it's it's the, it's the tropical plants that really have done it because they required a, a greenhouse or what would have been called a glass house back then. Um, so it, it took a little bit more care to maintain and manage these plants. And and sort of the exotic nature and the advanced care that it took was probably something that appealed to, um, I guess you would say, the progenitors of the plant nerd.
1: <laughs> okay, so that made them uh, prestigious to yeah, have this kind of plant. Yeah,
2: because you it, you, you couldn't have a poinsettia flowering if you did not have a greenhouse. So you had to, or, or back when they were first described, and then they would be produced in a greenhouse and brought back to your house. It wasn't just something you could grow in the garden, and it would just be green.
1: Right. So, okay, we love the color of the poinsettia. We love that bright red color. In the beginning, were all poinsettias red?
2: That's originally um, that is the natural or the the uh, yeah the the original flower color. Now you do see um, there probably were some white poinsettias in nature. That was probably Something similar to when you see a, a, a white squirrel that might be um, melanistic or albino, you know, where it's a simple mutation, which is why it just lacks the color. So there probably were some white ones in the wild um, occasionally. And those were those were brought into breeding, and now we do have white ones. In fact, um, the white poinsettia is very widely grown because that's what's used for those spray-painted poinsettias. Mm. It, it provides a nice canvas for the paints.
1: And we do see pink as well,
2: oh, there's a wide range of colors now. So what happens is when you started to get into breeding poinsettias, then they would purposefully make crosses to create more variety in the color. So you have everything from um, white, pink, red, you know, kind of all along that shade from white to deep red to deep plum purple. Um, this holiday season, you saw a gold rush. That's a, uh, an orange-bracted cultivar. Uh, you, then you see all sorts of variegated um, or patterns and um, all sorts of really unique colors. Uh, that are kind of mixed. There are some that look like a Jackson Pollock painting as well.
1: Oh, I haven't seen those.
3: Yeah,
2: yet. those those are called. It really does look like someone took a paintbrush and splattered paint on the leaf, except it wasn't actually done by someone. That's just the the genetics of the color, and that's what those are called the glitter or the jester types.
1: Now, in breeding for those different colors, how is that done? Because it's a pretty unique system in poinsettias, isn't
2: it? Yeah. So the the big the big colorful. Parts that we're attracted to, that's not actually a flower. That's called a bract. It's a modified leaf. And that's actually the advertisement in nature for the insect to come to the flower. And the flower is actually the little cyathia. If you look down in the center, there's some little um, kind of interesting looking botanical structures. And that's the actual flower itself. And so when we breed poinsettias, you have to make crosses where you're using the pollen from one plant and pollinating a different plant. And you do that in a very controlled fashion. And then you grow on the seedlings to see which. Cultivars, or which colors you want to keep and maybe keep breeding with, or select for commercial use. Once they're identified for commercial use, then we propagate them vegetatively by cutting, so they're all clones. But for the breeding of poinsettias, that's where we're actually making controlled crosses and using seedlings.
1: And I think we've talked about this before. Isn't there a a really a bacteria or? Yeah,
2: there's a phytoplasma. Okay, tell me about that. I just love to say that word. Um, (laughs) What happened is poinsettia growers used to grow multiple cuttings in a single pot and that would grow up and then you would sell that plant. But like any sort of business, there's um, trying to approach production and reduce costs. So that what they started to do instead of planting multiple cuttings is you plant a single cutting and then you would pinch the tip and allow branches to form and those would replace what were the multiple cuttings. Um, but poinsettias didn't always branch well. But then they found that some branched really, really well and made really nice pinched plants. And they ended up finding that there's a virus that actually makes the branch, the plant branch more freely. And so when poinsettia breeders come up with cool new colors, but they don't branch well, well, they have the nice colored bracts that they want, so they graft it to those free branching plants. And that phytoplasma, that virus, is transmitted to the new cool color that you're developing and then when you take cuttings off of it after that, it will be free branching. It's really unique and there's not a lot of instances where we have that same um, deliberate introduction of a, uh, a plant virus or a phytoplasma into plants for that uh, purpose.
1: Let's talk about what it takes to produce enough poinsettias for every single one of us to have one in our home or office. I mean, there are so many of these plants for sale everywhere. What kind of poinsettia production needs to happen every year?
2: Well, uh, poinsettias, uh, they're actually a pretty long-term crop. I always um, laugh that I'm always kind of out of sync with everything else that's happening because right now... Um, As far as a greenhouse grower, you're kind of of on the tail end of production, and right now you're really thinking about Easter because your Easter lily bulbs are going to be coming out of the cooler and you're going to have to start forcing those. So really you have to start thinking about poinsettias um, around the 4th of July. That's when you start to get your cuttings in from Central America. Now, uh, like I mentioned earlier, they're propagated by cuttings, and so all these cuttings are grown at what we call stock plant farms, and stock plants are those big mother plants that we harvest the cuttings off of. And they're shipped into the greenhouses, and then they're rooted in the greenhouse, um, and that's where we're again growing roots onto those individual cuttings. And it happens at a pretty rough time of year because if you know how sunny and warm it is outside in July, can you imagine what it's like inside the greenhouse? <laughs> and and they're a tropical plant, but they're not that not, no plant is that tropical. Um, so they uh, greenhouse growers actually try to shade their greenhouse to make it a little bit cooler. And then once they root, then they start to develop, and then we have to um, do that pinching process to start making some branches. And that happens, oh, sometime in maybe August, depending on the size of your plant.
1: And we've talked on this program many times about what we need to do to get poinsettias to bloom at the time of year that we want that color. So that's pretty tricky. In a greenhouse, how do you do it?
2: Yeah, well, um, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. One, which we call the natural schedule, which is um, you would just allow the days to become short Uh, right around or shortly after the third week in September, depending on which exact poinsettia you're growing. But near the end of September, the days become short, and that triggers flowering. So you can try and schedule it all around that natural season. Or let's say you're trying to have some poinsettias in the market uh, a week or two before Thanksgiving, you know, an early crop is what we would call it. Well, you'd need to start those short days before the days outside are actually short. So greenhouse growers have these large screens that are drawn across the crop. And they're not just shade cloth reducing the light, but they're completely blacking out the light. And they make that shorter day inside of the greenhouse. And so that's what you have to do if you want to get those earlier crops that you want to have um, in flower before the natural days would be short enough. Alternatively, if you're trying to grow a real late crop, when the days get short, you need to make sure you provide light to keep it a longer day to keep them vegetative so growers have to do all this scheduling because usually you don't just have one market date you're usually supplying for several weeks on end so they have to schedule multiple different crops
1: how long does the bloom last
2: oh it can last I mean it's not uncommon if you see someone who's got a green thumb to walk into a house in the springtime and see those red bracts still hanging on um, looking pretty decent while the new shoots might be growing up and having all green leaves
1: All right. Now, a lot of us who do have green thumbs, actually, I'm not included in that group, but a lot of people who do take great care of their poinsettias and they have them in their home all winter long and they want to keep them because they get attached to this beautiful plant. Sure. So if you want to keep a poinsettia, what do you need to do?
2: You have to do the same thing that that greenhouse grower is doing. You have to either give them naturally short days, so after the sun sets, make sure your reading light isn't turned on or your living room light isn't turned on, that's going to be interrupting the poinsettia, or you have to put that poinsettia in a place where it won't get light. So maybe you've got a guest bedroom where the lights aren't going to be turned on, or if the lights are going to be all, are on all around your house, then you've got to shuffle it back and forth between a closet each day. But I think a great idea would be to go support the great Iowa greenhouse industry, who does a fantastic job at uh, producing poinsettias of all sizes and colors.
1: Chris Curry is an associate professor of horticulture at Iowa State University. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is a special Fun Drive edition of Horticulture Day. Back in September, we held a field day at the ISU Horticulture Research Station north of Ames. Hundreds of IPR members attended. And now we're going to listen back to my conversation with some of the many members of the Hort gang that were there that day. Horticulture Day has been around a very long time. We'll get into the history here in a moment. It's 37 years old, and it's part of Talk of Iowa, but it's far older than Talk of Iowa is, actually. Um, And, of course, you know, the magic of Horticulture Day has been apparent, I think, since the early days, but I feel like Hort Day's really had a moment in the last three years, And I think a lot of that is not just because with the pandemic, people started spending more time outside and and found that they had more of an interest in gardening and, and had more questions for our experts. But I also feel like in many ways, this program is about much more than gardening. And it is an oasis. It's a retreat. It's like spending time in a beautiful backyard with friends. And it feels good. It's the highlight of my week. And I think during a time when a lot of us needed things that felt good, <laughs> a lot more people turned to Horte. So it's it's really fun to be here with you today. And I want to introduce my guests here. This is Jeff Isles. He is professor and chair of the horticulture department at Iowa State University. Next to him, Cindy Haynes, also professor of horticulture at Iowa State. Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension horticulture specialist. And you hear him almost every week on Horticulture Day. He does a lot of the behind-the-scenes work. And then down at the end is Donald Lewis, professor emeritus of entomology at Iowa State University. And I mentioned that Horticulture Day is 37 years old The only reason we know that is because Donald Lewis (laughs) writes things down. (laughs) Because in radio, you know, a lot of ideas get bounced around and you try a lot of things. You have no idea that you're starting something that's going to last 37 years. So you don't say, oh, this is the founding day of (laughs) of Horticulture Day. Um, And I, I think that the show originally grew out of two things. One is WOI Radio which is now part of IPR, had a mission very similar to Extension, which was to make the knowledge and the resources at Iowa State University available to the people of the state of Iowa. So it's a natural that we would call the horticulture department and ask them to share their knowledge. But also in radio, you do a lot of things to fill time. And people have a lot of questions about gardening. So I think that was also part of the original impetus. It's like, well, I think we could fill a lot of time with folks <laughs> from the horticulture department. But Donald, you were one of the very first guests on Hort Day. What was it like in the beginning?
4: Oh, it was crude. Um, <laughs> and I think Don Forsling may have been the host at about that time. And so, you know, you sat across in this curmudgeon waiting for the questions to come out of the ether At you. But, you know, I hate to be the one to claim that I know when it started.
1: You're all we've got, Donald. (laughs)
4: Uh, Well, I am the oldest here, so uh, that does fit. But back in the day, records were kept on a carbon-based analog material called paper. (laughs) And written in pencil 37 years ago in the calendars that I have just kept because... Well, that's what Dad did. You kept everything you ever wrote down. Is this notation, WI Radio, 10 o'clock Friday, and that's it. You know, And, and I kept going back further and further looking for other notations just that cryptic and never found one except for the one from for 37 years ago. So as Dad frequently said after many of our neighbors died, there's no one around who can doubt your answer. <laughs> No one is alive who can contradict you. So I'll take the credit. It was 37 years ago, and it's still going strong and probably stronger than it did then. Thank you, Charity.
1: Oh, absolutely. And Jeff, you were not one of the very first guests, but you came around about a year into Horticulture Day as a graduate student, right?
5: Right. I came to uh, Ames back in 1987 and began a career as a graduate student and Donald might have stopped by my office one friday it might have been a thursday afternoon and said you know you've got a face for radio
3: <clears throat>
5: <laughs> and it was scary i mean i'm answering questions from all of you who probably knew more about horticulture than i did at the time so we we made things up but most of the time we were on we were on solid ground but it was a great experience and, and it was just it was just fun it continues to be fun thanks to Ms. Nebby, to my right.
1: <laughs> the, um, <laughs> there were a lot of things that were different about Horticulture Day in the early days. As I mentioned, it predated Talk of Iowa. And there was actually a period of time when there was a Horticulture Day, but there was no one to host it. And one of the things that is so maddening about the two brilliant men that you've already heard from is that they are experts in their fields but they're also really good at radio so they they have phd's and all this expertise that i don't have but it's very clear that they could do my job any day. so And they did. <laughs> but that's that's the thing. So there was no host but they kept Horticulture Day on the air and Donald and Jeff were the people. I, I spoke to Richard Geron. He was here earlier and he's left and, and he was organizing who would be the guests on the show and he said, oh, I always made sure that either Donald or Jeff was going to be there because they loved pushing the buttons. <laughs> I mean, Donald, you got to play radio
4: host well yes the the buttons were flashing in front of us and you randomly pick one and say who's there um <laughs> and i've learned since that you just say and what's your question <laughs> but you know that was being the host meant you also had to watch the clock and there was a time where you were expected to read the weather um, we did not have to give the farm report so that was a uh, good news but we had to keep it running and take people's questions and work the weather into it and promote the next programs and so forth like that. Uh, it was a great experience. I loved it all, did you, Jeff? It was great. It was great you were I was your wingman <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I wish I wish there were tapes, but we never kept tapes. <laughs> that was another thing. A lot of history, a lot of history of WOI Radio was lost because we didn't know anything special was happening, or, or didn't give ourselves and the people who came before me enough credit for some of the really amazing things that they were doing. There are a few tapes that remain, but I don't think we have a Jeff and Donald show. <laughs> But I I would love for all four of you to give us a little bit of insight because – You know, you can't see the the horticulture specialists, the horticulture experts who are on the show or the entomology experts who are on the show, but they are always working without a net. They don't have an iPad or a computer in front of them. They're not looking things up and fact-checking. So when you listen for an hour and this huge variety of questions comes at them, they are just taking them as they come. And Aaron... I mean, you you were on Hort Day for a while with Richard Geron, and now you are our new Richard Geron in many, many ways. But when you had to step away from the safety net of having Richard there,
0: how did that feel? You know, it's interesting because uh, a lot of folks have this question because you don't know what's coming on the other side of the phone call. And surprisingly a lot of the questions are very similar like uh, we get some questions all the time we were talking about this with richard earlier today you know lots of questions about how to control creeping charlie um he knew that very well um (laughs) and probably
1: still dreams that answer (laughs) yeah
0: i think so uh and we do get a lot of questions about certain topics you know uh, tomato diseases and what's wrong with my tree which are some Some of those are not easy to answer, especially on the radio, but a lot of the questions, if you just, um, if you have a good understanding of kind of how plants work and how plants grow here in Iowa, uh, you can get to an answer and sometimes you have to memorize a few things, you know, like triclopyr controls, creeping Charlie, uh, (laughs) that kind of thing. If you wanted to use a herbicide. Uh, but there's, there's, there's themes in a lot of the stuff that we talk about. And I think regular listeners probably hear some of those themes come out. Um, and so you kind of lean on that and then backfill with some of the information um, that you remember because you've answered this question maybe once or twice before.
1: Right. Are you ever surprised by the end of the hour at how many questions you've answered though?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean the average show we answer between 15 and 18 questions in less than 40 minutes um, which seems, and sometimes I feel like we go on and on and on when we answer a question and we still get that many questions answered. It's really surprising sometimes.
1: Cindy, I know that uh, you also had Richard as a safety net for many years, and you have told me that you're a big fan of just the pointing.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when Richard retired, you had to stop doing that. Well, sort of. Well, sort of. <laughs> I'm still on with Aaron,
3: so I can kind of just sm- move away from the mic, and then I know Aaron will take over. No, my my safety net, um, Richard knew all of these cultivars for different things, and um, and I could remember some of the vegetable cultivars that I had tried before, but it was the fruit cultivars that I could never remember. So for the period in between before Aaron was you know full time and Richard was retired. I had the fruit cultivar publication with me every time I went to radio. Open to cherries, because someone was going to ask me about cherries or raspberries. And I knew how to get to that cultivar. Nice. So that was the only thing I felt like... You would think I would have them all memorized by now, but no. So And now I don't have to bring it anymore, because I'm usually on with Aaron, and I can just slide <laughs> away. Or Suzanne. Suzanne can handle all the fruit cultivars now.
1: Well... Do any of you have a a particular question story that you like to share? I can think of a very funny one that you got once, Donald, about cicadas. But you probably have a few.
4: (laughs) Although my short-term memory isn't what it used to be. And... um Many of them are just kind of buried in the past as sure. uh, they weren't. But what Kate, what uh, Charity was referring to was um, not a cicada, it was a katydid. Oh, a
1: katydid. See, I, my short term memory yeah. is not so great either.
4: And I can't remember the whole setup, but it, essentially, the woman wanted to know how to preserve katydids because it made her husband amorous. <laughs>
1: Even went as far as to confide in us that he would he would make the sound of a Katy did. <laughs> <laughs> and we, were, we I couldn't see Donald's face, but I can imagine what it looked like, and I'm sure Richard was bright red.
4: It's, uh, <laughs> it's not what you expect, you know. We are the horticulture show; we're not the sex education show. Um, but. You know, insects have lots of great purposes, but I think that purpose is unique to that one individual.
0: (laughs) How about you, Aaron? Um, The the question that I remember that was really funny to me was somebody had called in and they, they had this little setup. It was basically, okay, so let's say you had like a one foot by one foot patch of grass and you did everything you needed to to that patch of grass to make sure that it was healthy and living if you did that, would grass be immortal? <laughs> and, and Richard was with me when we right. had that question. I think the first thing he said was, well, I don't know if I say immortal, <laughs> but so, it would live, yes.
1: Right. Sometimes you're, uh, you're pushed beyond your area of expertise. Well, this is a philosophy question, and also I'm curious about your relationship with grass. <laughs> You're listening to a special Fun Drive edition of Horticulture Day on Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is a special drive edition of Horticulture Day. This hour, we're listening back to a conversation recorded at IPR's September Field Day at the ISU Horticulture Research Station. Now, we will hear a little more from Jeff Isles, chair of the Horticulture Department and longtime member of the Hort Gang. Jeff, I'm curious. I mean, you don't get to be on the show all that often. Jeff has the the poor taste of having a regular 10 o'clock meeting on Fridays, a department meeting. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I get to miss all the, all the fun, but once in a while, Charity invites me back. I've got a colleague, though, that you probably have heard on the radio, uh, Mr. Mark Vitosh, <clears throat> who is a oh. DNR district forester. So you're going to
1: pick on Mark even though he's not here?
5: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought he might be here. But what was, some of my favorite shows are when Mark is on the program because we always disagree and it's a, it's always a friendly disagreement but but Mark and I sometimes come at things from a different perspective I'm more of an urban forestry guy he's more of traditional forestry so it's always fun to to match wits with uh, with Mark Vitash a great colleague and he spends his time over there in the Iowa City area. So,
1: Well, and you, they each get a few digs in every time they're on. Well, one of my colleagues might tell you otherwise, but here's my opinion. So you've got to listen closely for this ongoing feud.
5: For, for the record, though, when should you not prune oak trees? Now. Thank you. <laughs> Mark, Mark and I both thank you.
1: Right. <laughs> they agree on that. There are minutiae in that answer that they disagree on. But Cindy, do you feel like you get a, a sense through the questions that people ask for different trends and even a shift in values uh, among this community?
3: Yeah, I think that is something that we see over time that, you know, it was very, our gardening habits are changing. Um, what we're Gardening with or for is changing as well. I mean, when I first came in uh, to answer questions, there were very few houseplant questions. So, and now there's quite a bit. There's quite a few. So, um, so there's there are some trends that we can kind of get from the radio, which is really helpful because Aaron and I also. Manage this web page, this Horton homepage, Horton Homepest web page, where we try and keep kind of keep keep up with some of those trends. It's a it's a nice way to kind of have some insight into gardening around the state. Yeah, well, and sometimes and- outside of the state because people will call from Minnesota or Missouri. It's
1: true, Illinois, uh, Illinois. Yeah. Well, and and the biggest trend that I've noticed, uh, and Aaron you might have thoughts on this, is. The questions that we're getting about lawns, we're getting a lot fewer questions about ground ivy and a lot more questions about diversification.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. That has been a, a big topic. That has come up. And with that um, is just chemical use in general. Um, and so uh, kind of talking to that, the, the hard part about answering those questions isn't um, giving non-chemical-based answers. It's the fact that most non-chemical-based answers are a lot of work. Um, and so it's hard to say, um, oh, I have I want to have a pollinator lawn, but I have all of these thistle in my lawn. How do I get rid of the thistle? And there's not a herbicide that can kill thistle and not clover and dandelion and all these other things too. So then your option is, well, you can hand dig it um, uh, or you can just put up with it, right? And sometimes the hardest part about answering questions on this show is the answer I have to give is not the one they want to hear. And so... Uh, that has been a big that has been a big shift, and 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 a, and a nice one to see in many ways, because it's nice to see that folks are thinking about new ways of doing things or different ways of doing things. Of course, we still have lots of folks who. Uh, take very good care of their lawns and try to have these wonderful green carpets and they're no uh, more right or wrong than the folks who want pollinator lawns they just have a different goal in mind Um, and so figuring out what that what that what kind of person what kind of lawn person we have on the other side of the phone is sometimes maybe the hardest part about answering the question.
1: I would love very briefly to hear from each of you and we'll put some of these other wonderful folks that are standing over in the shade there on the spot as well but um you know so many of us obviously horticulture is a a hobby for people um something that many of us never thought of studying or pursuing as a career and I am curious about when you became plant nerds and, and and discovered this field and Aaron, I'll let you go first because it was early for you.
0: Yeah, uh, I have um, the. I got interested in horticulture through 4-H. So uh, I think it was like seventh grade or something like that. I had found gladiolas in a mail order catalog, and I thought, "Oh, I'm going to grow these for the fair." And so I grew these gladiolas. I knew they were going to be work because I knew they didn't overwinter. And I think that first batch that I overwintered like did not really overwinter very well. But you learn. That's part of, you know, if you don't kill a plant, uh, you're probably not trying hard enough. Uh, trying something new hard enough, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's how I kind of got interested in it. And I started doing more and more gardening through high school. And then I knew I wanted to come to Iowa State. And I recognized horticulture from 4-H. And I found out more about what kind of career you could have within it and... I guess that's where the, the beginning of the end started. I don't know.
1: And you told me you're currently rewriting the publication oh, yeah. that you used yeah, with so, those
0: gladiolas. Right. So there's a, there's a couple of publications that if you're a 4-H family, you're probably very familiar with. It's um, uh, judging and exhibiting vegetables and herbs and... Uh, uh, it's a similar one for Cut Flowers. Mm-hmm. And Cindy and I are revising that publication right now. So if you're a 4-H family, you're probably really excited to hear that. Because uh, it has been a while since uh, it's been revised. And I'm literally revising the resource that I used as a 4 her so uh, cool. to help me get started. It's about time. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while.
1: Aaron, thank you very much. You can go uh, tag out um, Aj. Send him over. <laughs> so Jeff this uh this epiphany came a little later for you a little
5: later I, I grew up in suburban detroit uh, heavy industrial area so it's not really the garden spot of the world but i was a, i was at michigan state i was a pre-vet major and my grades were horrible so i i plan b i took a, a woody plant class and i thought you can make a living knowing something about woody plants my dad wasn't convinced but uh, <laughs> the rest as they say is history so i was i was very lucky and then charity brought me the rest of the way oh
1: right, so right. she's great <laughs> believe you at all. Uh, when did you become a bug nerd, Donald? There's, there's a long version of this story. You can hear the, it on an old podcast. But yeah.
4: <laughs> Late in life also. Um, I grew up, I planned to be a dairy farmer like my dad. I went to college to study agriculture, to become a dairy farmer. And in my sophomore year at, as an undergraduate, I met an entomologist. And he was the teaching biology at this small liberal arts college And by the third year of my undergraduate degree, he had offered an honors course in entomology. And that was the semester I said, goodbye, cows, and hello, bugs. (laughs) And so it was just an about face at that point. Becoming a horticulture nerd, though, came much later after I accepted the job at Iowa State University, I met horticulturists, and there were some um, horticulture students who were also taking entomology, and I hung out with Rex Bastion a lot. He was an undergrad and instructor in the department, and just hanging out with horticulturists is uh, infectious. I grew up knowing one cow from another. You know, I could look at a cow and say, I know that's Wanda, and she's going to need a cup and a half of feed, and she's going to give 18 pounds of milk. I recognize individual cows. It was Amazing to me that I met people who could indiv- could recognize individual trees, that they could look at one and tell me the name of it and its history, and, and that's what drew me into Extension and drew me into Horticulture Extension.
1: And I've heard you have a wonderful hosta collection.
4: He does. I, you John know, Hallmark. Not, Hallmark. not so much this year with the drought, but... Uh, I have a shade garden, so I can't grow vegetables and fruits.
3: Wait wait a minute. Weren't you on a hosta tour recently? Well,
4: we were part of the National Hosta Convention that was held here. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Mr. Modesty. uh, So I'll go tag another one, and you can keep going.
3: All right. Cindy? Okay. So I I got interested very young as well. My Aunt Gracie. My Aunt Gracie. So I grew up in Louisiana. Go the other direction. And Aunt Gracie had uh, daylilies and akemenes. Does anyone know what akemenes are? Cute little kind of flower that blooms in summer from this kind of bulb. And she had this really tiny little fiberglass greenhouse. So... And I didn't understand how anything grew in this fiberglass greenhouse because it was all moldy and not a whole lot of sun got in there. But she could grow anything, and it was great. So she inspired me uh, to go on, and I wanted to be a florist and went through high school taking horticulture. We had horticulture in high school and went to college, and then I worked in a florist my senior year and said, uh-oh, wait a minute. <laughs>
1: I don't want to do this.
3: I don't know if I want to <laughs> do this. So I went on to, to go on to school for a master's and a Ph.D., and my parents just thought I was going to be a student forever. <laughs> so, But eventually it turned out okay.
1: <laughs> you haven't quite left the university, though. Not, not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me introduce Ajay Nair. He's been out here talking vegetables. You've probably, a lot of you have, have talked with him today, but he's an expert in a lot of things, in particular sweet potatoes.
6: But tell me where it started for you, Ajay. So for me, uh, it was uh, primarily the vacation time, you know, visiting my grandparents. And, you know, I, this is to the southern part of the country in India. And we grow a lot of coconut and banana and black peppers and just walking around and enjoying. Dr. Iles won't allow me to grow coconut here. Uh, neither banana, but hopefully climate change will at some point. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but that's how it all started.
1: So it, it was associated with good feelings when did you realize you could do it for a career
6: Yeah so uh, the undergrad program was in agriculture and uh, there back in India it's it's a very comprehensive course it's not just fruit or vegetable it's everything <coughs> cereals pulses rice plantation crops and that's when the interest my interest uh, peaked in this uh, area came to United States and to of all the places from a southern place to Maine uh, and that was a, a shock, you know, <laughs> in, in terms of weather and, and, and culture. But it was a phenomenal experience, you know, working in the greenhouses, and the gardens there, especially fruits, vegetable plant, uh, ornamental plants. And, and that's how horticulture, you know, kind of. Nice. I thought of it could be, yes, I could make a career out of it. Suzanne Slack is right here. She's
1: a fruit specialist. And where did this start for you, Suzanne?
6: Yeah, so, so my story is kind of weird.
1: So I grew up on a farm, but I went to school for English. because I didn't think you could make money off of plants after living on a farm my whole life. Sorry to my family. Sorry to my family, yes. Um, And then I took a plant biology class. It's kind of a nerdy class, and I realized how cool plants were. So then I switched. I did have to convince my dad, who was a farmer, (laughs) that it was going to be fine. Um, And then I got into fruit, especially because I had a choice. I got hired to either be um, an undergrad worker for the tomato lab or the tree fruit lab. And the tree fruit professor told me I didn't have to bend over, so I said sold. <laughs> and then the rest is history. I've never left fruit. <laughs> Adam Tomes is down there on the end, our turf grass specialist. Adam, where did it, when did you fall in love with your lawn? Yeah.
0: So I kind of backed into mine. Uh, I enjoyed playing football. I wasn't very good at it, so I had a lot of time on the sideline to look at the field. Um, <laughs> So we played a rain game, and after the game, you know, I stood around and watched the field get tore up, and I watched the janitor out there fixing the divots and things, and I went out and talked to him, and he said, you know, you could do this. And so I went to Iowa State, and my parents said, you can go there, but you can't be a farmer because you tear up way too much equipment. So I was like, all right, and then, uh, you know, I got a job working at Jack Trice. At the time, it was building and grounds, and I thought, great, I'm going to paint the field, mow the field. I got to do the grounds part second after you got the bathrooms ready for each week. So it was like great but it stuck with it really enjoyed it and uh really enjoyed the you know the ground side as opposed to the buildings so i like the turf a lot better
1: (laughs) all right we've got two more shy experts here and then and then we will wrap things up but this is laura isles and you've heard her on the show talking entomology representing a few different departments over the years but laura where did where did bugs start for you yeah, so I'm what
3: you would call a born
1: entomologist, so I've just kind of always liked bugs. I was that kid looking under
3: logs and raising caterpillars, but I didn't really realize that was a job, and I grew up in Iowa City, so of course I went to the University of Iowa. I was going to be an archaeologist. I didn't attend class super well, and you have to actually have 10 class and like memorize dates to get a degree in that, and I went to my advisor at some point not doing well and said, I maybe want to be a park ranger, and she's like, you need to go to Iowa State. So I transferred there. None of the GPA transferred. That was a good thing at the time. And then <laughs> I was gonna like work in like, you know, county parks, do interpretation. And then they took us out, Jim Pease, who ages ago in the radio, he taught this class and he would take us out to the park and we had to do a program for fifth graders. And any of you who know fifth graders are like super smart, a ton of questions, and I went, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Like they are so intimidating. And then I went to grad school and the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs>
1: And we're going to end with some prairie, although Adam Jenke is the Extension Wildlife Specialist, so he has a lot of areas of expertise. Where did this start for you, Adam?
7: Yeah, so uh, your first question that you posed at the very beginning of this was how did you fall in love with plants? And I have a also kind of a backwards way of plants. I fell in love with birds when I was really young and uh, knew I wanted to be a wildlife biologist for as long as I could be a wildlife biologist. And really early on in wildlife biology training, they tell you to stop with your head up in the air and look down on the ground where those animals live. And the rest really is history. You start to learn about plants and ecosystems and relationships between wildlife and uh, their environment. And in order to have an impact, restore wildlife populations, decrease wildlife populations, whatever your goal is in wildlife management, you have to know how to manipulate the land. So lots of wildlife biologists start off with an affinity for the cute stuff and just end up being botanists at the end.
1: (laughs) Adam, thank you so much. And thank you to all of our experts here today. Thank you, guys. It's so wonderful that they can share their knowledge with us. And again, that extension ethic of, of sharing the resources of the university with all the people in the state. Thank you all for coming today. I do want to say some thank yous quick. Nick Howell is is back over there. He is the farm manager here. He made all of this possible today, along with Andrea Hansen and my other co-workers. And I also want to thank our sponsors, Iowa Food Co-op, Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation, ZW Mercantile, and the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden. So thank you again for coming. And enjoy the farm. You've been listening to a special Fun Drive edition of Horticulture Day on Talk of Iowa from IPR News.